new year, new sermon series. Am I the only one excited? I already did this once, so you're going to have to bear with me. Yes, new sermon series, the book of 1 John. Um, If you've been around here for any length of time at all, you know that the main way that we do sermons is that we I get up here, we open a book of the Bible, we start at chapter 1, verse 1, and we go through chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And we do that because I want everything that we're exposed to to be God's Word and not just like my ideas or Pastor Lauren's ideas or someone else's ideas. And so expositional preaching is one of the hallmarks of the ministry of our church. But I also want you to know this, is that every time we pick a book of the Bible, we do it intentionally, right? I don't just kind of like grab the Bible and kind of point and click and be like, we're in Leviticus now, this is going to be interesting for the next six years, right? And so it's intentional. We did First and Second Thessalonians because I intentionally wanted to talk about living faithfully for the Lord while we await his return in the meantime. First John, I've selected this study intentionally because John's First letter, First John, is all about how we live as Christians, all about how we live and obey God and live in light, which means living in obedience to God and His commands, living in love, which is living uh, and showing our love for God by the way that we love other people. And so it's very intentional when we select a book. And so as we open that book and start to go through it, I want us to know that God has a message for us as His church and as His people from this book. The book of 1 John is really interesting because it's a book, it's a pastoral letter. It's a real practical letter. It's not highly theological. Now, there's going to be some theology, but it's not highly theological like maybe a, a book like maybe Romans would be. Uh, in the original language, this is interesting, when I was in college and, and uh, taking original languages, uh, you start by translating John, the Gospel of John, and then the book of 1 John because it's some of the easiest Greek in the New Testament. And John's heart as a pastor is going to come out throughout this entire book. John teaches these people, uh, and we'll talk about who that is in just a minute, but he teaches these people, and some of the main themes are assurance. How do we know? He wants to assure them, and he wants to encourage them in how they live. How do we know that we're Christians? How do we live as Christians? This is a unique book in that uh, he gives us his purpose for writing at least a few different times. I'll show you chapter 1, verse 4. 1 John 1, 4 says, And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. We're going to talk about that this morning. It's the last point of the sermon, so I'll save that for a minute. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, John says, My little children. And some of you may be offended by being called my little children. But here's the cool thing. John, some of you may not know this, John was actually most likely Jesus' best friend. He's called the disciple that Jesus loved in the Gospel of John multiple times. He's the disciple that Jesus loved. And he had a unique relationship with John, possibly Jesus' best friend. At the time that this letter is written, we believe that 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John were written somewhere 85 to 95 A.D., like right at the end of the first century, okay? At this point, John is an old man. When he started to follow Jesus, he was a young man. At this point, he's, he's probably an octogenarian, 80 years old plus, right? And he's been following Jesus for a long time, and he's the elder statesman. Uh, church history would lead us to believe that John probably at this point is the last of the remaining disciples, the original disciples, the original 12, that John's probably the last of the remaining. 
You might know that when John wrote the, uh, the book of Revelation, he had been exiled to the island of Patmos. And this is just before that. Church history also tells us that John actually moved and, and lived in the great city of Ephesus, that great city in Asia Minor, and that John lived there and he oversaw churches in Asia Minor, a whole group of churches. The letter of 1 John, as we will see, was sent to all of these churches. It's different than almost every other letter in the New Testament. I'll talk about that more in a minute. But in, in 1 John 2, 1, when he says, my little children, it's because this is the Old man, John, the established elder, senior pastor, the guy that people looked up to, and he was talking to church people. And he says, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And he's going to talk to them about what sin is and what sin does and what sin looks like and how sin breaks relationship with God and how we get pulled away from relationship with God by sin in our lives. And then... Probably the most famous of the purpose statements in 1 John. Let me hear those pages turn to chapter 5. Ah, there's a lot of them on this side. There we go. 1 John 5, 13. John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name. He says, I write these things to you who are Christians. You've already believed. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may what? Know that you have eternal life. Assurance. The book of 1 John is the book that you take people to when they're like, I'm not sure if I'm a Christian. I think I prayed a prayer when I was four, but I'm just not really sure. Like, how do I know that I'm a Christian? How can I know the truth about Jesus and about God? And how can I really have assurance? You take them to 1 John. It's interesting. In 2020, I started, I did a series on uh, the Gospel of John, and it was called Believe and Live, because John chapter 20, I think it's verse 31, is the purpose statement of John's Gospel, and he says he's writing these things that you would believe in the name of Jesus, and by believing you would have life in his name. John wrote his Gospel so that people would believe. John wrote 1 John so that people who had believed would know. And we live in an age of pluralism, in an age of relativism, in an age where nobody thinks that you can know anything. And John will say, you can know. You excited to learn something from this book? You know I am. <laughs> That's the purpose of John's gospel, or John's letter. John, 1 John 1, 1 through 4 is where we're going to be today. John's going to lay the foundation for this whole letter for five chapters. And I'm going to tell you, we're, we're, we're going to be in this thing probably into May. We're going to be going for a while. We're taking a few verses at a time. I outlined it. I think it's something like 19 sermons. And if that bothers you, let me tell you about a guy named Martin Lloyd-Jones. I have a little book by Martin Lloyd-Jones on his studies in 1 John. It's, it's called Living with Christ. And I think that's the name of it. It's, it's actually five volumes in one. It's over 700 pages. He does like four sermons just on chapter 1, verse 3. So if you think my 19 sermons are long, come on. It's a really good one, by the way. If you're a nerd like me and you want like something really meaty and really good but really understandable, Martin Lloyd-Jones studies in 1 John. But 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, he's going to lay the foundation. I'm going to read it again for you. I had Kelly read the Gospel of John and the beginning of the Gospel of John and then the beginning of 1 John so that you could see those parallels. But let me read 1 John 1, 1 through 4. And, and if you've spent some time in God's Word, I want you to think, what makes this sound different than basically every other letter we have in the New Testament, right? 
the beginning of 1 John versus the beginning of just about every other letter. Here we go. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, and we have looked upon, and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things to you so that our joy may be complete. You see the uniqueness of this intro? If you go all the way back to the book of Acts and you start at the book of Acts and you look at every single book of the Bible through Revelation, with the exception of Hebrews and 1 John, they all start out almost the same way by telling you who's writing, who they're writing to, grace and peace be to you. It's a, it's a standard Greco-Roman, the way that people wrote letters in that day, that's a standard introduction. The two places that it doesn't happen is in 1 John and Hebrews. And here I'll tell you why. Because John is launching right into a sermon. This isn't a letter in the way that most of the New Testament letters were letters. This is like a sermon. Most people believe, scholars believe, that this was either a sermon that was written down, a written sermon intended to be preached, or that it was actually, some believe that John actually preached this sermon and then they wrote it down. But it's, it's a sermon, and he's launching right into it. And he does something really interesting and unique. In the original language, chapter 1, verse 1, through the beginning of, chapter, uh, of verse 3, all of that is one sentence in the original language. If you're reading the English Standard Version, or you're reading uh, uh, probably the New American Standard, the New King James, um, some of those preserve the word order the way that it was in the original language. If you're reading like a New Living Translation or NIV, they change it a little bit. But John does something really unique here and interesting in that he doesn't talk about the, the, the uh, main verb in this little chunk until all the way down in verse 3. If you look at verse 3 and it says, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim, like that proclaim is like the main action. The, the object of this sentence is what's, is what's uh, listed up front. When he has says concerning the word of life, that's actually the object. And so in the original language, what John was doing when he was writing it and people were reading in that original language, they saw the object of the sentence, which wasn't, I mean, that's how they wrote in that day. They saw the object and then they went through a couple of relative clauses about that object and then they got to the proclaim what we do part. Here's what John was doing. He is launching this letter by building the foundation on Jesus. The very first word in our English translations, at least in the English standard, that, that which was from the beginning, it refers to who? It refers to Jesus. Like the way that these letters were written matters. When we study God's word, man, we want to see that because the author is pointing us at something. And what he's pointing us at right here in 1 John, he didn't say, hey guys, it's John, I'm the old man, love you guys, like let's get into this. He just launches right in and he launches in by saying, we're going to look at Jesus. He emphasizes Jesus and he puts the foundation on Jesus. And verses 1 through 4 is going to lay the foundation for the rest of the letter. So in these verses, I want you to see four aspects, four pieces of that foundation that we have in Jesus. I'll put them on the screen if you're taking notes. Jesus is the foundation, number one, of Christian experience. Jesus is the foundation of Christian experience. He says, that which was from the beginning. When he says that which was from the beginning, he's, he's echoing back to John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's echoing also back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. 
In the beginning, God. When he says that, which was from the beginning, he's talking about Jesus, God the Son, and he's establishing, this is really important, he's establishing the deity of Jesus right off the bat. In addition to that, the end of that verse, when he says concerning the word of life, word, logos, I'm not going to go into all the details, but it it meant a lot to Greco-Roman people in a philosophical sense. People who weren't Christians used logos to talk about some ethereal idea of beginnings. And John captures that language and the meaning of that language and puts it into that word. And he's establishing the deity of Jesus. God the Son, Jesus, is in fact God. And that's located right in that verse. And that is foundational to our Christian thought. In addition to that, he says, that which we have heard with our ears, we have seen with our eyes, we have looked upon. We didn't just glance at it. We, we gazed upon it. We stared at it, John says. And have touched with our hands. John says, we walked around with this guy. We heard him talk. We watched him eat. We shook his hand. We embraced. This is John, the guy who at the Last Supper leaned against Jesus. Haven't you seen the Da Vinci painting, right? He leans against Jesus. He's like, he's real. And here's why this is important. In that day, John starts by establishing the concreteness of the deity and the humanity of Jesus. It's all there in one verse. All of the theology about Jesus. Jesus is fully God and fully man. And here's why he did that. Since the time of Jesus, there have been Christological heresies about Jesus. Okay? We could talk about, and, and in, in times just after the New Testament was written, there was something called Gnosticism. There was a variety of different... Um, different ways that Gnosticism showed itself. There have always been different heresies concerning who Jesus was. I said a few weeks ago, church councils were formed to help people understand and establish orthodox belief about who Jesus was. In John's day, in the city of Ephesus, in a religiously pluralistic society, in a relativistic society, when you could believe whatever you want, you just can't believe it's right type of society. John is establishing the concreteness of the truth about Jesus. He's saying the truth about Jesus is historical. Jesus is a real historical person. I find it interesting that even secular theologians, and they do exist in case you were wondering, even secular theologians anymore these days don't doubt the historicity of the man Jesus There's a scholar by the name of Bart Ehrman, and Bart Ehrman is a professor of New Testament at um, uh, University of North Carolina. He's written lots of books. Maybe you've seen some of his stuff. Uh, Bart Ehrman was an evangelical Christian turned atheist, and part of his job, part of what his mission in life is to discredit the New Testament account, the New Testament Gospels, and, and, and the historicity, not the historicity of Jesus, but of Jesus being God. Bart Ehrman said in a writing, that no, and this is my paraphrase, just recalling from memory, but that no New Testament scholar, secular New Testament scholar, ungodly New Testament scholar, denies the historicity of the man Jesus. Like, what he's saying is that in the scholarly world, basically everybody says, yes, there was a man named Jesus who existed. The problem is, is that they think that the person, the man Jesus, is not the Christ of faith, right? That the Jesus of history is not the Christ of faith. 
And the foundation of the Christian life and the Christian experience is that the Jesus of history is, in fact, the Christ of faith. And so as John starts writing, he's saying that Jesus is the foundation, that the truth about Jesus is historical. It's knowable. Church, we live in a world, we live in a, in a culture where the smartest people in our culture are telling us, like, you can't know anything for certain, right? You can't know any truth. You can think you know, you can suppose you know, you can kind of know, but you can't know for certain. And John is writing to tell us that the truth about Jesus is knowable, it's verifiable, it's reliable, it's historical, and it's accurate. And that also makes it authoritative, so he starts out right in the very first verse to say, you can know this, we've been there, we've experienced, we've seen it. And here's why that's important. When I say that Jesus is the foundation of Christian experience, I'm talking about not just like the stuff that we go out and experience in life, I'm talking about the totality of the Christian life. That Jesus is the foundation of everything that I think and everything that I feel and everything that I understand. Jesus is the foundation of my worldview. Jesus, the the, the Jesus of history as the Christ of faith. Jesus as God the Son is the foundation for all of that. He's the foundation for my identity. He's the foundation for my activity. He's the foundation for all of those things. And the problem is, is that people put false foundations in place. Even Christian people, right? One of the reasons that people go to church, like Jesus is the foundation of Christian life. But we go to church so we can have a social experience. Like, social experience is not the foundation of the Christian faith, right? Showing up at church isn't the foundation of the Christian faith. Going to Sunday school isn't the foundation of the Christian faith. Raising your hands in worship is not a bad thing. By the way, you should try it. But some of you are like, easy now. <laughs> okay, all right, push too far. <laughs> but that's not the foundation of the Christian faith. Social activism and social justice. Some churches exist for social justice. That's not the foundation of the Christian faith, right? No. Personal health and well-being is not the foundation of the Christian faith. Jesus is the foundation of the Christian faith and the Christian life and the Christian experience. We experience Jesus through his word. We experience Jesus through how he's revealed himself to us. So Jesus is that foundation, verse 1. Then verse 2, if Jesus is the foundation of my experience, if I've accepted Christ as my Savior, if I've become a follower of Jesus and given my heart and my life to him and I've experienced Jesus, then what? John tells us that Jesus is the foundation of our Christian testimony. He says in verse 2, and you'll notice, by the way, that there's a dash before and after verse 2. That's because John, again, in, in what we have is verse 1 was writing, and then he made a parenthetical statement that relates back to verse 1, and he says this, the life, that's Jesus, was made manifest, that means he appeared, was made manifest, and we have seen it, okay? Jesus showed up, they saw it, they followed him, they walked around with him, they watched him do the things, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. And that word proclaim, I have it double underlined in my Bible because that's what they taught me in elementary school. You do with the main verb, you double underline it. And there it is. Here's why that's important. To testify, 
he uses the words of testify and proclaim repeatedly. To testify was to give witness to something. It was akin to what we would know as a legal deposition, okay? You're driving down the street, you see a crime occur, you witness that, the police come, hopefully the police show up, and they say, hey, we need to get your account of this whole thing. They take you over, they click on the recorder, and you give them your testimony. They say, hey, we're going to need you to come into court, we're going to need you to give a deposition, we need to like, make sure that this thing is legal, maybe they have you take an oath, and all of that. They're like, this is kind of serious business, right? This isn't King 5 News showed up, and it's like, what'd you see? I saw a UFO. Right? No. This is like the real deal. Those are the words. Testify and proclaim are words that are related. And when he says testify, you're thinking a legal witness. And John says we are giving a, a legal witness to Jesus. A verifiable, historical witness to Jesus. When he uses that word proclaim, think about a guy with a megaphone. Right? And he's just shouting and proclaiming. Think about how some of you were last Monday night. Late, too late, and you dub pulls it off somehow, some way, and you're screaming and you're shouting, yeah, baby, woo! I give, I'm giving you guys a chance. I know there's you dub fans in here. They're right up here. Come on, let's go, go dogs. I can't really do that thing with my finger very good. There, ow, that hurts. Wow, <laughs> right? We know what it means to proclaim stuff. I was talking to somebody after the first service, and they were like, we can yell and scream and shout and get excited, throw things, get pumped, whatever, about sporting events. And then a guy stands up here and preaches the Bible, and we're like, yes, I concur. Right? Yeah. Anyway, moving right along. To proclaim means to herald, to be excited about it. And John says, we have experienced this, and we are proclaiming this. Church, here's what I want to tell you. Jesus is our message. Jesus is my message. Jesus is your message. There are lots of messages that I could proclaim. There's only one message that I need to proclaim. Jesus. Right? That's the gospel. That's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That's what that means for our life. When I preach the Old Testament, we're pointing toward Jesus. When we preach the New Testament, we're showing what happens as a result of Jesus. That Jesus is our message. And we proclaim him clearly. We're not shy about it. We're not kind of like, oh, I don't want to say that because it might be offensive if I use the name Jesus. I was in downtown Tacoma yesterday. Bible open, like, right? I'm in a coffee shop. Bible open. It's like, oh, am I going to get shot for this? No, no. We proclaim Jesus. We're proud of Jesus, right? Clearly, unashamedly, boldly. There's too much in the world today, church, of, well, we don't want to be offensive. We want to be careful. We proclaim lovingly. Yes, right? Peter, let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt. Okay? Sometimes salt gets a little salty. But we need to proclaim. And we need to do it clearly. And we need to do it in a way that is like people aren't guessing. Like, does he love Jesus? Uh, is he on team Jesus? Like, they should be, be pretty clear about that. In verse 2... It says that we, the life was made manifest, we've seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life. And I just want to hit on that word briefly. We'll talk about it more because it shows up so many times in 1 John. The eternal life, Jesus as the eternal life. What are we proclaiming? What is our message? Eternal life through Jesus. I love what 
again, what Martin Lloyd-Jones had to say about this. He says, life outside of God is not life. It is merely existence. That's tweetable, right? And he's been gone for a while, but that's tweetable. Oh, it's not Twitter anymore. What is it again now? X? Okay, that's Xable. I don't know. Life without, <laughs> there we go. Life outside of God is not life. It's merely existence. But what we are proclaiming is eternal life. That's quality of life right here and right now. That's relationship with God through Jesus right here, right now. Church, that's our message. We share our testimony. We share our story. Each of us has a testimony if, you, if you've become a Christian. Yesterday, I had an interesting opportunity. It was a cool opportunity. A buddy of mine who's a church planter here, uh, in, actually in Sumner, called me up and he said, hey, I'm going to a church out in Graham for their men's breakfast. I'm going to share my testimony and will you come and like be my wingman support and, and all that kind of stuff. So I went out and we're there, room of a hundred or so guys at, at this church. We had breakfast and then my friend John gets up to share his testimony and it's one of those cool testimonies, right? So John grew up in a legalistic home. I won't share the whole thing in case he comes to share it here someday. But the gist is he grew up in a real legalistic home, and then he ran away from the Lord as a high schooler and into college. He went, went into the military, ran away from the Lord and everything that that meant. And through a series of events between a church, and then he was a police officer in Lakewood, was involved in a shooting, almost lost his life. Uh, bullet went within an inch of his head, almost lost his life, and God used that to get a hold of him. And he spoke from James 4 and talked about submitting yourself to God, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and all of those things. And throughout that entire testimony, you heard Jesus, 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 Jesus. He started with Scripture, not with his experience. We got to hear a really cool story about going 110 miles an hour down I-5 by the Tacoma Mall and pinning a car against the thing and this whole shootout that occurred. And We're men, right? We're all like, all right. This is impressive. You're here to tell the story. The other guy isn't. Like, whoa, this happened? But we walked away from that, not with, wow, John is such an awesome dude. Wow, John is so cool. We walked away from that, all of us saying, I need some more Jesus. Because the whole thing was about how rotten John was and how John wanted to like take his own life at one point. And after that happened, he went into deep depression and how God pulled him out of that through Jesus. The difference between testimony and biography is this. Biography is all about me. Testimony is all about Jesus, right? And as Christians, man, we have a testimony to share. I'm in there and I'm like, wow, it's an amazing testimony. He comes up to me afterwards. I'm like, everybody needs to hear this, dude. We need to podcast it. We got to get a national audience. Like, people need to hear this. And then you know what happened later? I'm sitting there and I'm like, man, my testimony is so boring. I didn't do any of that dirty stuff right? Like I snuck out one time and went to the movies and my mom didn't know about it. And I just told her that last week too, so, right? I was like, I listened to secular music a little bit when I was a teenager. Man, God's got, you know, I got nothing to proclaim. And then the Lord smacks me upside the head, right? Because we get to hear all about what John was. What nobody in here knows is what I would have been. And I know what that would have looked like. I know what my tendencies are now. I know my struggles, the thoughts, and the things. I know. I know what these poor girls would have had to go through with a dad if Jesus hadn't gotten a hold of my life, right? Man, at the end of the day, guys, we ha all have something to proclaim. There's not a boring testimony, right? You think, oh my gosh, I was saved at the ripe old age of four out of life of sin and terrible things. Imagine what you would have been. Imagine what you could have been. 
Think about your sinful tendencies now. If you didn't have the Spirit of God in your life, can you imagine what that would have looked like? No, thank you, right? There are no boring testimonies. Each of us who have been changed by Jesus has something to testify about, and we have somebody who needs to hear it. Man, that's a really important one, too. John said this. He said that that we don't just experience Jesus and then keep it to ourselves, right? Verse 1, he's like, I I walk with Jesus. I I follow Jesus. Now he's an old man, and he spent his whole life and experienced great persecution for following Jesus. And he's like, that what we experienced, we now proclaim to you. Who do you know who needs to hear your story? Who do you know who needs to hear about what Jesus has done in your life? Who do you know who just needs you to say, hey, you should come join us at church, right? We all have something to proclaim, and that something is Jesus because he's the foundation of all of our Christian testimony. Number three, Jesus is the foundation then of Christian fellowship. And I want you to see how these each build on each other. As I have a Christian experience, I have a testimony to share And I have a testimony to share. I get to invite other people into fellowship. And this is what he says in the end of verse 3. He says, so that, why do we proclaim? What's the purpose of proclaiming? So that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but about an hour, half an hour ago, I had fellowship with the donut. And it was good fellowship. I got a full one. Somebody told me, Joel told me, I saw you back there staring for like 10 minutes at the donuts. That's because there was one that was whole that they didn't cut in half. And I'm contemplating, I'm the pastor. Are they going to see if I take the whole one? And I felt like I had to justify it to like three people. It's like, look, it's whole. I can't break it in half and then put it back. Come on. So I took the whole donut. The problem with the word fellowship is when we say fellowship, we think donuts, we think fellowship time, we think, man, our church has an extra special fellowship time because we've got granola bars, cheese, yogurt special fellowship, right? If you grew up like me, when I say the word fellowship, I smell egg salad sandwiches cut into little triangles. Y'all know what I'm talking about, right? I go into a diabetic coma because of all the cookies that are on the table. Because fellowship, man, we're going back to eat, man. When we talk fellowship, I want you to think of like a mutual, it meant a mutual sharing in common. It it meant a, a deep sharing of a common purpose there's a reason if you guys are lord of the rings fan there's a reason as most of you know J.R. tolkien a christian a believer in christ at least as far as we can tell and that he embedded a lot of christian imagery into that lord of the rings into the lord of the rings series there's a reason that when we hear fellowship of the ring and you read that part of the book or you watch that part of the movie even, that that resonates with us and speaks to us because we were made to be in connection and commonality with other people and not just for donuts, but to be on a mission, right? To be on a real mission. That's what Christian fellowship is all about. Christian fellowship is, is great when we're having donuts and coffee. We're not going to knock that. We're going to spend good money on it and keep doing it. Amen? But what we want is for people to go to that and then start to talk to each other and develop relationships with each other. And that way, the next time you're having a tough time, you've got somebody to call on the phone and say, man, I'm really struggling. Can we chat? Right? That's commonality. That's togetherness. And in this little piece of verse 3, I want you to notice that there are two aspects to Christian fellowship that are non-negotiable. They're essential. Look at them. He says, we proclaim to you so that you may have fellowship with us, 
That's horizontal fellowship, okay? Christians with Christians. We need to have fellowship with each other, sharing together, commonality with each other. That you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. That's vertical fellowship. And I need you to know that they are both essential. That you can't have one without the other. As a matter of fact, our vertical, our horizontal fellowship, our fellowship with each other, is just an extension of our fellowship with God. That's the reason we can all get along with each other, right? In this room are different views politically. Can you imagine that? Well, probably not very different. But there are different political views. There are different views on taxes. There are different views on food. There are different views on clothing. There are different views on music. There are different views on football teams. But the reason that we can all be together in common and commonality is the fellowship that we have with God gives us fellowship with each other. That's how God designed the church, and both of those things are vital and important. The point of us proclaiming and having Christian testimony is to invite other people into this fellowship. Ladies, have you ever seen, okay, guys too, have you ever seen that, like, that sale, and you were like, yes, I got to get one for myself, and I got to tell all my friends about it, right? Some of you guys feel left out. It's okay, fellas. I see the sale. I saw one the other day, right? Something was on sale, and I texted a friend because I knew he likes the same thing. I better hit him up. But the natural tendency is for us that, that when we experience something, like we get excited about it, and we want other people that we know to know about it and invite them to be part of that as well, right? Do you know that's biblical? You know that that's part of like how the church is supposed to work. And when he says that we have a fellowship with each other, and our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ, I believe that true fellowship can only be experienced by Christians. That I can have friendships like true fellowship is experienced by Christians because God is what glues us together. God is what glues us together. And Jesus is the foundation of that Christian fellowship. That then leads to verse 4, the first of his purpose statements, where we'll see that Jesus is the foundation then of Christian joy. He says, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Uh, if you're reading the King James, it says that your joy may be complete. And I, I believe, my understanding here is that this is a, a collective hour. That when John says our joy will be made complete, he's, John's not just talking about John's joy would be made complete. He's talking about that his joy would be made complete. The people that he's writing to would be our collectively. He says that our joy may be made complete. And it's interesting because those words sound a lot like words that John wrote down in the Gospel of John. John 15, verse 11, John wrote down some other words about joy, but they were spoken by Jesus. Do you remember these words? These things have I spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be complete. In fact, in John 15, in John 16, in John 17, all Three different times during that one conversation on the night before his betrayal and death, Jesus talks about one of the last things that he leaves with his disciples is like, your joy can be complete. And I would ask you this morning to consider this. What would complete joy look like to you? Like, do you believe that, that you can experience complete joy? You're like, I'll be pretty excited today if the Seahawks win. Do they play today? 
I forget. I, I, see some, I see some bad looks. I know what that might mean. Don't raise your hand. Don't, don't spoil it for people who already have it recorded, right? Some of you are going to experience some joy tomorrow night, maybe. But at the end of the day, like, do you believe that, like, true joy, complete joy is even possible? When I think about joy, the word soul satisfaction comes to mind. That my soul is satisfied with God. That my soul is satisfied with Jesus. Soul satisfaction. Do you believe that Christians should be joyful people? Yes, right? And not just charismatic Christians. Come on, right? Come on. Like some of the rest of us can like step our game up a little bit, I believe, right? I will tell you some of my philosophies about Reformed Christians and charismatic Christians. Do you guys want to hear it? No, okay. Uh, moving right along. I'm guaranteed to offend somebody in that conversation. But I think some of us who have been more Baptistic could probably learn a few things from some of our charismatic friends. Now, I've always heard, you know, be charismatic with a seatbelt, right? Put the seatbelt on. But some of us, man, we need to learn to be a little more joyful. We get this idea that, like, you know, to be a Christian means to be very pious, right? We got a lot of Christian Eeyores. But at the end of the day, joy, if he says, my joy will be complete, I don't think that I'm very, you know, I'm joyful on the inside. Yeah, but you'll get a sourpuss on the outside. Come on. Show somebody about it. Yes. Joy. Because Jesus can give us joy. Jesus is the foundation of our joy. Well, again, we'll talk more about that as we go through this great book. But Jesus is the foundation of that I want to try to tie all four of these together as we close, and I'm going to use an illustration from something that just happened to me this past week, an experience that I had, uh, and I want to say up front, like some of you will say, like, this is flippant, okay? This is an experience that I had, and I think that sometimes that God gives us these things because life experiences can be mirrors of spiritual realities, right? So this past week on Thursday, my friend Mike called and he said, hey, I've got tickets to the Seattle Kraken, and the person I'm supposed to go can't go. Would you like to go to the Seattle Kraken game? I've never been to a pro hockey game. The last time I went to what is now Climate Pledge Arena, it was called Key Arena. And there was a team that played there called the Seattle Supersonics. Anybody? Any? No? No? Okay. Too, too soon? Yeah, I thought so. Right? It's in a lot of years. But I'm like, hey, a Seattle Kraken hockey game? Yeah, that'd be fun. And it's free? Sure. Let's go. You're driving? Even better. Let's go. Right? So we jump in the car, we drive up there, and I knew I was in for something special as we're pulling into the parking garage, not even at the stadium yet, and there are like huge drums and like a parade and chanting, and I'm like, I'm in Seattle, is this okay? Like this might not be for the Kraken, it could be for something very different, right? Can we get out of the car? Okay, good. But we, we start walking into the stadium and there's like hordes of people, it's a Thursday night and they pack the place out. We get into the stadium, people are going crazy. I've, I realized really quickly, like we are one of about 15 people out of the, I don't know, 20,000 people who are there who don't have like a, a Seattle Kraken jersey on. I felt a little bit out of place. He had a hat, like he got online, like a, a beanie. I was like, okay, at least we're not going to get like beat up or hung or something, right? And I just stayed really close to him. But we go in and, and like all these people are in all this gear, they're all excited, we find our seats, they're really nice seats. And then the show ensues. Like before the game starts, they've got like Vegas style show with lights. I was having a seizure. They had like music. It was bumping. I had a heart attack. I mean, it was, I, I've been to Mariners games. Let me tell you something. They don't do this at the Mariners, okay? I haven't been to a Seahawks game in a long, long time. I don't know if they do it at the Seahawks. But there were lights and music and crazy all over the place. 
And I'm like, this is intense. There's a couple sitting behind us. I think they were probably retired. It seemed like it. And I think their full-time job was actually following the Kraken. They knew the first name of every guy before he got introduced. Oh, that's Joey. That's Billy. That's Tommy. I'm like, do they all end in Y? And they're coming out, right? And they're all excited about it. The game starts. We're all cheering, doing our thing. I've never been to a game. I've never even actually never seen the Kraken on TV. But I am there. They score their first goal. You know what I did? I didn't just sit there like, hmm. I went nuts. We're jumping up and down, screaming and shouting. I'm like, which team's winning? Yay, woohoo, right? They have this deal where they play a Nirvana song, and then they scream, let's go Kraken when they score. I was like, I'm back in high school. This is amazing, right? Yeah. And we were so, like, everybody is all excited about it, and I'm looking around, and I'm like, this is like a family of people all excited about the same thing. There was some experience that was happening there right? We could see and hear and taste and touch and all the stuff. They had this pretzel with cheese on. Never mind. I'll stop right there. But you could experience all those things. And that experience led us not to just want to be like, eh, that was cool. I'm not going to tell anybody about it. By the end, Mike is checking out season tickets. I'm about ready to go buy a jersey for a team that I've watched one game and I know my wife will kill me when I get home. I didn't buy it, right? But there was some testifying going on. And I felt a sense of fellowship with people. I'm like, we're united around a common goal here. We're walking out of the stadium afterwards, chanting, cheering, craziness. And I was like, like somebody might misconstrue this as some actual joy, right? Then I got to thinking, man, maybe the Christian life is supposed to be a little bit more like that. If I can get that crazy over some silly hockey game, like the God of the universe sent his son to be my savior. God the Son came and lived a real life in real human flesh, died a real and painful death experience, separation from the Father, and he did it so that I could experience eternal life. Is that something for me to get excited about? Is that something for me to testify about? Is that something for me to invite other people into fellowship so that we can have joy together? You better believe it is. So at the end of the day, Jesus is the foundation of all of this. So what do I do? If you haven't trusted in Jesus, man, trust Jesus as your Savior. Admit that you're a sinner. Pray. You don't have to come talk to me. Pray to God. God, I admit that I'm a sinner. My sin separates me from a relationship with you. And I accept Jesus as my Savior. Trust in Jesus. Testify to Jesus. Church, I want to see these pews full. I want to see two services full. I want to see us knock this wall out and then fill that up. Why? Because people are coming to Jesus. Because people are excited about Jesus. Who do you know who needs to hear your story? Who do you know who needs an invitation to church? Testify to him. Fellowship with him. And fellowship with other Christians. Some of us are living in isolation. That's not what God has designed for us. Don't live in isolation, man. Live in fellowship and community with other Christians. And at the end of the day, enjoy him. Experience joy with Jesus. Amen.